Hey, Groovers. Kurt and I are taking a break for a couple weeks, so we are republishing one of our favorite episodes, a conversation we had with Dr. Scott Jeffrey from Monmouth University in New Jersey. This conversation was so engaging that we wanted to make sure that no one misses out on it. And just so you know, it was only the third podcast that we'd ever recorded, and we hope you enjoy this very early representation of our work. Welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply that to work and life. This week, we got to talk with Professor Scott Jeffrey of Monmouth University. Scott is one of our favorite researchers, and his seminal work on the benefit of tangible incentives is one that Tim and I have both internalized and used for years and years with our clients. Scott is also one of the initial researchers and originators on the theory of justifiability, and he has done a lot of work on how that impacts both cash and non-cash rewards. Our conversation with Scott was wide-ranging, discussing Adam Smith and the lack of current focus on Smith's book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which, by the way, Tim, came out 20 years prior to The Wealth of Nations. Uh, We also talked about Scott's research on heuristics used by dragons in the Canadian TV show Dragon Den, which, again, if you didn't know, is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, the cognitive misers discussion. I love that. I think that that'll work well with listeners as well. So we also got into elements of dual self, uh, talked a little bit about Max Bazerman's work, justifiability on non-cash rewards, the say-do gap issue, and how he came up with the concept. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, how money is not always the best motivator. Talked about consumer-facing behavioral science versus employee-facing behavioral science. How relationships really matter, especially between employer and employee. Um, the source attribution of awards. And maybe most importantly, how you should never ever, never follow Dan Ariely on stage, (laughs) (laughs) along with a bunch of other rabbit holes that we went down. Yeah. So uh, Tim and I were in the basement of the Sheraton Hotel when we recorded this. It was cool. It was cool. But please forgive any or the couple technical gafus that we have. Overall, this was a great conversation. But I will warn you listeners that it is one where we get very geeky and nerdy. Very Yeah, and so some of this was very technical. The stuff that Tim and I love, uh, hopefully you do as well. So put on your thinking cap, grab a cup of coffee or a beer if you so desire that, and listen in to our conversation uh, with Dr. Scott Jeffrey. So let let me start with how I got into into this uh, field. When I was taking my MBA, um, everybody wanted to take investments. It was the big thing. We all wanted to do finance. And I signed up for a second class called Decision Making Under Uncertainty, which was a behavioral economics class. Yeah. And I went and talked to the professor and he said, oh, you should just try it out. Check it out. And I loved it. So it was, it was, that was my start. And I talked to him about uh, PhDs in the, in that field. And he said, well, you have to go to Chicago or Cornell. And I asked him if there was anywhere where it was warmer because this was <laughs> California. At the time. He's and he said, no, that's pretty much it. So, uh, that was the start of, um, where I got into behavioral sort of decision theory. Who was, who was the professor? The, the, uh, and applied to both. Oh, see, I knew you'd ask me that. Um, <laughs> uh, Scotsman, I can't remember his name. I could look it up. I'm sure I could find it. No. He was a co-author with Dick Thaler on a on a paper on um, on quasi rational economics. So it was a very nice uh, recommendation letter to have. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. So you applied to the Booth School, right? I applied to the Booth School before it was the Booth School. Yeah. Um, and was accepted. It was this the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business at the time. Okay. Um, I also applied and got accepted to Cornell, but decided that uh, Chicago was probably better for me. Um, the The decision-making heuristic there was, well – where would you rather work versus go to school? 
Uh, and I thought, well, it would be nicer, I thought, to go to, to work at Cornell uh, because generally most PhD programs don't hire their own graduates. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so you went to Chicago uh, thinking, if I'm going to get hired, Cornell would be a better spot to, to go. Yes, right. <laughs> that it would be a, a better place to go. But it didn't work out. They didn't have a job, and uh, and they do mostly marketing. And and I got um, Chip Heath gave me some advice when I was there. He said, "Well, behavioral decision theory at the time, behavioral economics was not a big field. Right. This was late '90s, early 2000. So it was uh, before Kahneman won the Nobel. It was you know before Thaler. So it hadn't really gotten anything. So he gave me the advice. He says you have to find a trade." You have to basically be able to do something else and behavioral economics. <laughs> oh, wow. And so, so what wow. was the trade that you were going for? Then? So I became sort of an organizational behavior slash management guy. Okay. Uh, went, did some work at Northwestern, some, uh, spent a little time up there with some of the OB guys. It's more of a management program there um, to sort of learn the trade. Okay. Took a couple of PhD seminars there. Uh, so that I could you know, sort of pretend to be a, an organizational behavior person. <laughs> I, and, I, now, and now I pretend to be an ethicist. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, because that's what you're teaching. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And how does one teach ethics? That's uh, that was I had my in my MBA course, I had an ethics course, and I always thought that was an interesting uh, component as, as I was uh, going. It is. It is. When I first got the course, I was sort of worried about it because I didn't really think that there was a lot of content. Right. I mean, once you get past Aristotle and Mill, <laughs> you kind of say, well, what is there, what's left to, to talk about? Um, and so I've taught it mostly as a discussion-based class and giving lots of examples. And I do, you know, I do go through the sort of the ethical theories and those kind of things in the first half of the class. Right. We spend some time on what's called stakeholder theory which okay. is basically you can't, you shouldn't just focus on maximizing wealth for your shareholders uh -huh. uh, that you look at customers and the government and your employees and treat them all sort of as people with a stake in your company. We also spend about a week. I'm going to add a little more uh, on sustainability issues. Okay. Uh, so looking at again, as, as a takeoff from stakeholder theory, it's like one of the stakeholders is you know, the planet and the population and those kind of things. So we go into sustainability as well. Okay. So we're in the middle of a, of a, uh, of a decision that Amazon is going to be making here in the near future about where they're going to relocate their headquarters. Right. Right. Um, how do you think uh, stakeholder theory applies to Amazon and uh, whether it does or not, whether they're using it and if, and if it would, how do you think that they could apply it? Well, I think that their main concern has to be over uh, their employees. Like, where are the employees going to come from and where are they going to be the happiest? Okay. Uh, this is now, you know, now that we're at unemployment of 4.1%, the quote-unquote war for talent is becoming a big deal. Uh, and retention is a, is a big problem. And unless you are considering your employees as, a, as, as an important part of your um, – constituencies as a stakeholder, you're not going to retain them and they'll leave. And finally, I think I'm seeing sort of the, the, the pushback and that it's not all about the money, right? That it's, it's, it's not just about earning. It's not all about a transactional relationship between the firm and the employee. That so, it's also, you know, a social relationship. Yeah. So to take this uh, kind of down a different route, right? That stakeholder theory component. Sorry, we're way off script already. But, <laughs> That's all right. You know, this is how we this is how we roll. Uh, I, I apologize to my students about that all the time. I say, you know, I call it going down the rabbit hole. Okay, we're down the rabbit hole now. Yeah, we're we're going a whole different route. Um, but if you look at like classical economists and they're talking about Adam Smith and, you know, wealth of nations. And now, you know, you look at, you know, a moral, what a moral sentiment, right? That was the, the Here's moral sentiments. The book yeah. he wrote 20 years before wealth of nations, yeah. right. which is, which, which has a different tone about it. But if you would look at uh, a wealth of nations and, and some business people or, or whoever, you know, 
government components and, and they're looking at that saying, no, it is all about you know, maximizing stakeholder, not stakeholder, um, um, shareholder, shareholder returns. Actually, it, it depends on how you interpret um, um, Adam Smith. I think he was much more of a stakeholder guy. I, I, well, I would say the first yeah. one, yes. I think it's just the interpretation. So He believed in empathy and sympathy for the common man. And although he gave that quote where he talked about, you know, that it's not for other people's benefit that the butcher or the baker make their things, it's like it actually is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> out of a service to humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So again, it, it depends on how you read what you essentially what you read first, right? <laughs> if you read Wealth of Nations first, then you say, oh yeah, it's all about economics and transaction, and you know, by being selfish, I you know do the best for everybody. Um, whereas if you read Theory of Moral Sentiments first, you kind of get, oh well, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that should be required reading that if you read one, you need to read the other. Yeah, um, I, I do too. I do too. I, and, you know, and, and I get so many of my economic students regurgitating Adam Smith and um, Milton Friedman to me. And it's like, look, you know, read, you know, read the other stuff first. Yeah. Yeah. And understand it's not all about making the most money as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I know you don't have a beeper, so I won't tell you my new sort of mantra of, of capitalist mantra. We are we are we are actually an adult. Uh, okay. I, so the new mantra of capitalism is "I got mine, screw you." Yeah. Uh, and you know, I I don't think that's a very good mantra. Yeah. So it's it's not ideal. No. No. Did you want to uh, get get back on script here, Kurt? Is we'll get that, back on script. <laughs> Sorry about that. We'll get back no, on script. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> we we led you down that rabbit hole. Yes. So there down you go. the rabbit hole. Yeah. So wh- what do you think has been your most influential work? Work that you've authored or been part of and why? <sighs> well, I like to think it's the the article I wrote um, on the benefits of tangible incentives, because that's the one that the practitioners have kind of glommed onto. And it's the one that gets the most reads on research gate and all of those things. Yeah. The one from the academic standpoint that gets the most is the, um, dragon's den, the, the Canadian version of shark tank, where okay. we said, how are these guys making their decisions? And they are using heuristics. They oh. are taking, they're making shortcuts. Well, tell and us that's been cited a number of times. So tell the listeners about that. So what we did is we looked at, we evaluated the tapes of, as I said, Dragon's Den, the Canadian version of Shark Tank, and tried to figure out the process by which peop- the, the sharks, the dragons, were evaluating, were rejecting the, you know, were saying, you know, I'm not interested, you know, I'm out kind of thing. Um, and what we found is the first thing they used was what's called the straight, you know, this is back to Tversky, uh, elimination by aspects. There's eight central criteria. And if it, if each one did not make a certain level, they were not in. Hmm. So there was no sort of economic macroeconomic theory of like, Oh, you know, compensatory decision-making and trade-offs and all those things. It's like, no, if you're below this level on any one of these eight, you're out. Yeah. Uh, and that was our first, our first paper. And, and, and then our that second, gets cited a lot. You, you, you get cited a lot. It's been cited over 200 times. So, oh. yeah, it, it's, it's a very popular article. And, and so the, the component around that then is the, the heuristics they use are not necessarily the most optimal ones for the outcome that they're, that they're trying to go after. Would that be what it is? Right. We, we looked at um, some of the old um, uh, literature on the trade-offs between accuracy and speed. Okay. And they were in a very compel- in a very shortened time period to make decisions. So they weighted, they weighted speed more than accuracy. Did not employ what was called the compensatory, whereas a, a high level of one can compensate for a low level of something else. If anything was below this cutoff, they were just out. Um, and so that would not be 
a non-compensatory decision rule can never be better than a, a compensatory rule. Right. And so, yeah. yeah, so they were making trade-offs of accuracy, of quality, to be fast. Okay. So let's go back to the to the benefits of and to be work. and to be simple too. I mean, that, there's just not a lot of cognitive capacity to hold all those things in your mind and trade them off. Right. Yeah. In the short it, time period that they have for a television right. show. Yeah. All right. So we were also, you know, we sort of called them cognitive misers. They were looking to to minimize the amount of cognitive effort they had to use to make these decisions. <laughs> so in that, that sense, there. elimination by aspects is a very good model. Well, aren't we all cognitive misers to some degree? Yes. Yeah. Well, not as Dick Taylor would call them econs, right? No, econs right. don't pretend to be. <laughs> yeah. Only us humans. Only uh, the rest of us. Right. Well, let's go, let's go back to uh, the benefits of tangible rewards. You, you, you consider that you, okay. you like that, that paper better. Uh, tell the, reader, uh, the listeners, if you would, a little bit about, about that. And what is it about that work that you... Uh, that you really value? Well, it was basically the um, developmental and uh, hypothetical development of my thesis. Right. So it talks about these four elements of tangible incentives that makes them motivating. So to, to me, that represents sort of my whole thinking on the use of tangible incentives. And so it's, it's kind of behavioral decision theory because it talks about mental accounting. It talks about, um, joint separate evaluation it talks about those kind of things, but it makes up these other this, this sort of the social reinforcements uh, and the justifiability, and that really has that people like per a hard time fine. You guys there? We are. We are still oh. here. We oh, you uh, are. Okay. We're stopping the video on okay. our end uh, because um, we're concerned it's taking up too much bandwidth, and we want to get your answer to that question one more time, uh, if, okay. if if you would. So, what I like the best about that piece of work? Y yes. yes. Yeah. Correct. Is it lays out sort of the beginning of the theory of why casual incentives are motivating. So it talks about justifiability, social reinforcement, evaluability, essentially it's um, as, as Krishik goes, risks as feelings. It's like there's a, there's a big emotional aspect to incentives and it captures that. And then the mental accounting, like it's just, money is just more cash, whereas uh, a tangible incentive is evaluated separately. So it talks about those four elements. It's, it's sort of the lays out the groundwork for for my career. Right. Yeah, and, and that's why I like. You, by the way, you've got two fans right here, Scott, because we, we think that 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 is a, a really great piece uh, as well. That's a really great article. Are, are are we losing? I think we might be frozen. Can you hear us? I like the best. Scott, would you mind uh, cutting your video to reduce oh, sure. Let me reduce bandwidth? Uh, stop video. Okay. Sorry about right. that. That's okay. That's right. I think that's better. Yeah, okay. I think we can okay. get better, better processing. Uh, on, on justifiability, were you mm -hmm. the one who brought that into the literature, or did you bring that from somewhere else? That was always a question I wanted to because that, I think, is one of the key pieces, at least in a lot of the work that uh, both Kim and I have done around incentives and around the, the tangible reward component, is that that justifiability of, of a non-cash tangible reward versus that cash and how it gets used is really, I think, fundamental to, to some of that. And I'm just wondering where that, that came from, and did you coin that, or was that something that you grabbed from somewhere else? That is something that I... Did and it was kind of a, at the same time. Um, this was going on at, at NYU as well. Okay, um, but a slightly different um, uh, tack. But essentially, a similar thing is like that. That hedonic items were better in certain types of things. Right. Uh, 
because of the because of the justification, because of the evaluation of it, the emotional evaluation of it, um, the separateness, those those kind of things. Itamar Simonson from Stanford was sort of working on that um, early with one of his graduate students. Oh, interesting. Kivetz. Yeah, Kivetz was 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 yep. uh, was closely. I mean, I think Simonson was. Um, was Kivis's uh, advisor, so I think. Yes, he, he was. Okay. Um, so, what what work has influenced you the most? What 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 are the what are the the, the papers or the the uh, the researchers that have had the most impact on your work? There is a great paper um, by Bazerman and Max Bazerman and some of his colleagues uh, that's entitled "Arguing with Yourself and Losing." Um, that talks about a lot about this sort of this dual self problem, you know, computer. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, I, we've, we've talked about that in the past and that is, that is one of the best we had, uh, we had a discussion, uh, we've been doing a bunch of, uh, podcast interviews today and we had a discuss discussion earlier today about the want self versus should self. Yeah. That's the one. And that's it. Yeah. So that's that's the one, and there's also um, there's sort of you know th- this this ties over nicely with the Danny Kahneman system one and system two, uh, the want self and the should self, the um, uh, the elephant and the rider. Uh, Jonathan Haidt yep, yep. wrote that that the elephant and the rider, same kind of thing. It's we are really two selves. And so Scott, how is that in what? What about that was influential for you? Well, the, the way I started on the thesis was I was, I was a TA for um, my uh, Josh Clayman at the University of Chicago in his management class for the MBAs. Okay. And one week we were talking about uh, non-cash incentives. And this guy brings in a newspaper clipping. He says, oh, yeah, here's the deal. Out of 550 salespeople, 90% of them chose to be bought out of their travel incentive. Okay. And so, you know, so there's no room for non-cash. Everybody just wants money. And I took that away and I thought, well, that's really the wrong question. Is you really don't want to know what people would say they want. You want what caused them to work harder. Yes. And then I started thinking about these elements, especially, you know, justifiability, social enforcement. And these things might sort of give benefit to non-cash incentives. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a great spark. I'll tell you, that's a, such a great spark. How did you so get that was the thing. So I, I took this article and I kept it with me for a long time. I don't know where it is now, but I kept it with me for a long time. And I said, look, this is, this is not the question. Um, you remember the article in um, Salesforce XP, you know, right answer, wrong question. Yeah. Yeah. And that's essentially, that was what it was, is that, that, that was, it was essentially the wrong question. You really care as, that as, um, as an employer, what makes the incentive more motivating? Yeah. Not what they would choose because there's a lot of, you know, discussion in the economics literature about, look, people say they want money. They're, they're sort of, um, I don't want to use the word brainwash, but they're, they're sort of taught to say cash is best because cash is option value. Right. And it's that safe you gap issue. Uh, you know, and I, I, I know, I've used a quote from you uh, in the past, and now I can't uh, say it, but I've used it in, in some... Choice and the decision to take actions are separate psychological transactions. Thank you. There, there, Tim has it memorized. I'm not I love that, that good yet. I love that quote. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are. I mean, they are essentially different. They're different mechanisms. Yeah, and it, I think that is is one of those key components that at least in the work that um, I know both Tim and I have done, and I think other people as well, is that, as to your point, it's like people are not necessarily brainwashed about this, but they have such a strong opinion about, hey, that can't be right, when they don't really understand right. um, it, that there's, those are very 
different things. What people say they want versus what actually drives that behavior are two fundamentally different um, things. And, and Absolutely. it's hard for executives to wrap their heads around that many, many times as, as I've uh, dealt with when you're talking to them. They're going, well, my people say they want this. And I go, that's great. That's right. So it's like we already know we asked them and they said money. And I said, so, yes. so we're done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, it it is that simple for for so many uh, that that we get into. Uh, you know, the the corporate world is still, uh, at least in the U.S. and I think a large part of Europe is still kind of just based in this. Well, we we did the we did the survey, and so we got the, and we got the answer to the question. So we don't need any any more than that. Yeah. And by the way, right. I. You know, and, and, you know, I read all that stuff in uh, Dan Ariely's book on Predictably Irrational, but that doesn't really apply to my people. You know, my people are different. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm different. My people are different. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. We're, we're all, as, uh, you know, we're from Minnesota, so we're all above average here, right? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, different things. So, Scott, what are you working on now, or what are the, the, the hot topics that you think would be really interesting for people or that interest you right now what's what's going on well right now i'm working with uh with a social psychologist at harvard okay on individual differences so are there individual differences and right now we're looking at attitudes towards money so if people are you know if their love of money is high then maybe a non-cash incentive is not going to be as motivating Okay. Uh, we're, so essentially we're, we're talking about asking survey questions that have been in the literature for a while about attitudes towards cash and see if that sort of makes any difference in the incentive value of different types of incentives. So in other words, uh, almost a personality profile, but specific around cash, and then that's impact on, on the, the performance of various different incentive types. Right. Cool. So, uh, so where are you at? And this, this sounds pretty interesting. Uh, the idea of getting very specific uh, now in, in the award mechanism of actually narrowing it down to individuals uh, rather than just right. groups. Um, have, you, have you been able to uh, get some of your fundamental research done? Uh, you know, do you have anything that you could preview with us right now? No, we're just we're just actually developing the scales right now, and our um, sponsor is working with the the sponsoring firm and trying to get agreement on when we can come and and that kind of thing. So, uh, who you met? You you uh, know Charlotte, but Charlotte is working with uh, with a company to see if we can get in there and and poke around a little bit. That's great. That that's terrific. Yeah, and in, in fact, uh, we'll be we'll be interviewing Charlotte here in uh, in a couple of months. She'll be uh, she'll be coming into uh, Minnesota, and we hope to to have her on a podcast. Uh, yeah, coming up shortly. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. Um, so so beyond your work, are there other hot topics that if somebody was to get into the behavioral sciences today, that you would recommend somebody to say, you know what? Uh, this is the this is the area that that uh, I think is going to be taking off in the next three to five years that is really going to get some attention. What would what would your take on that be? You know, I it's I I don't know that I could speak to that. Um, the the place to look would be oh, to go to Ariely's blog and see what what Ariely is talking about. <laughs> He's He's sort of the the big shot right now. Yeah, even more um, so than Thaler, you think? With the with the recent uh, well, it's, I don't know. You know, Thaler is Thaler's an economist. Thaler's a finance guy. Yeah. Whereas Ariel is more of a marketing person. That's true. So he he's putting the word the word in in sort of consumer behavior. Yes. Where. Uh, and that's sort of where, you know, and mine is sort of on employee behavior. But uh, I think Ariely is, is sort of the, the, the guy to look to right now. So, so that, uh, 
that brings up an interesting question. Um, we, we won't, we won't, let's not dish on Dan. Um, let, let's, uh, let me go back to this idea that, that uh, we're at, you know, 4% unemployment, that uh, companies need to be concerned about the relationship they have with their employees. And, and yet here you are focusing on, on that employee behavior and yet the market seems to be saying, I'm, I'm really kind of concerned or interested in consumer behavior. Um, and, and any thoughts about that, Scott? Well, you know, I think that, you know, to go back to sort of the stakeholder theory, I think that we still haven't gotten to a world where um, employers think about their employees like they should. Um, you know, they think about employees they think about customers and okay. So I think about customers. Um, I, you know, I've got a, my whole business is creating customers and selling to them and employees are still, I think to a large extent, very viewed as variable costs. Mm. Um, and so I don't think that as much is going on there. Now, Ariely has a YouTube where he talks about, um, the social versus the, the, um, you probably know this article, the tale of two markets yeah. Tim, the, the social versus the economic. And, and he really pushes, he says, look, you know, that the relationship you have and want with your employees is a social and not an economic one. Yeah. We actually saying, you know, you don't go to a friend's house and, you know, and, and give them 25 bucks for dinner. You bring them a nice bottle of wine. Yeah. So I think that moving that into the employment realm is probably where the, the next step is yeah we had uh james Heyman on the yeah. podcast earlier who was co-author of that of that right right that study so it it is interesting i think though that the 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 level where what we've seen and tim and i were just at a, a conference out in san francisco a few weeks ago that was focused on the consumer right applying behavioral sciences to the consumer you right look at most of conferences, articles, the the components that are out there, it is that consumer facing piece, and and it has much it has not taken off on that the employee facing side as much. And I think right. there's actually a lot more that can be done, and I think it can have a huge impact overall um, on that. And it's just a it's a shame to a certain degree that that isn't getting as much attention. But that's hopefully, you know, part of what we're trying to do here is, is to apply not only inside organizations, but also, um, you know, to those employees and, and, and people's lives in general. So hopefully this, right. is, we're at the forefront. Um, so, yeah. So there, maybe, are some mark, there are some marketing research on this that they call internal marketing. That's like, you know, marketing your company to your employees. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's friend. It's, yeah. it's not the mainstream. Yeah. Well, and I, I read you had just a, a little LinkedIn article about employee communication and the importance of employee communication. And I think that's a, another key area that, that is just, again, overlooked um, yeah. and, and missed. I don't know if you want to comment on that and, and your thoughts around employee communication. Well, I think, you know, I, I think, again, it all goes back to relationship and, um, a very influential piece of work has been done on what's called organizational citizenship behaviors and perceived organizational support is that you need your employees to do things that is not in their job description to be a successful company. And how do you do that? You do that through relationships. You don't do that through, you know, here's an extra, you know, here's a, here's an extra 25 bucks in your check. You do that through building a relationship. Um, Tim, you remember Guillermo, uh, yeah. who I did this work with? Uh, Waterloo, right? It's actually, yeah, Waterloo, on on uh, customer oriented citizenship behaviors uh, in a bank, and it followed from recognition, and that was all mediated through relationship variables. How people felt about their supervisor, how people felt about the firm, actually, how people thought the firm felt about them. So what happened, the way that we ran this is we looked at it, we said, look, what happens is this recognition behavior leads people to feel that their company cares about them, and that leads them to engage in these behaviors. 
Um, yeah, that was, that, that was, that was really cool work. I'm sorry. Excuse me, Kurt, you were going to say, no, I was just going to say, so what are some of the specifics that you found out from that work, um, that can help in that, uh, kind of building that relationship perception? Well, we did this, it was research with a, with a, a large bank that had very, a lot of small branches and what we found is that the important relationship is, is the relationship between the employee and the branch manager. If they feel that that branch manager displays concern for them, then they are more likely to engage in good service behavior. Yeah. In, in some ways, it's so simple, right? That, yeah. But companies uh, continuously miss out on the opportunity to have the branch manager be, in this case, for instance, uh, the, the person who really is the, uh, the champion of the team. Right. The face of the organization, if you will. Right. Yeah. Especially in a, in a large branch organization. Yeah. They are the face of, of the organization. Yeah. And it matters. I mean, the relationship matters. I think that's kind of what we what we sort of rail against. Is that look, it matters how your employees feel about you. They're not just cogs in the in the in the machine. Yeah, it really not, matters. They're not just plug and play robots that you right. can say here here's your thing to go. They're they're again to that part. We are humans, right? And as humans. Um, the the myriad of emotions, the myriad of influences that happen on that can all make a huge impact on how we do. But I think the it's interesting. So the insight from that, at least that I'm taking, uh, is is that we need to pay more attention to those relationships and how to positively impact those relationships inside of an organization, and that will ultimately to better performance. Absolutely. And, and this is where I tie back in sort of the tangible incentives because tangible incentives are a social exchange, not an economic exchange. So if you, if it becomes an economic exchange, then you build an economic relationship. It's, you know, money for services. It's not a, a sort of a social relationship between the employee and the firm as you can get when you have, uh, tangibles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've, you've talked a little bit about in- incentives and you certainly talked about work that was influential to you, but what was it that actually got you interested in incentives in particular? Uh, I think it was this, that newspaper article uh, from that guy who said, well, look, you know, that it's all about cash. Uh, and then talking some more to Josh Clayman, my supervisor, and saying, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. He says, oh, yeah, there's all, there's a whole bunch of stuff on, on perks and benefits that's similar, but it's, it's, it's related literature, but it's not really the same thing as incentives. You know, um, he actually is, I'll never forget this lecture. He once talked about a building that was, that was built, I can't remember, New York, some big city, but it was built such that there were 15 or 16 corner offices on every floor. So it was kind of a jigsaw looking building because the corner office is a big deal. So you have have all these corner offices. I think that's actually in Minneapolis. It's it's the, Oh, okay. That might be, it might be. It's the, but it's fascinating, right? It's like, okay, so give them the corner office, but how do you do that? Well, you put 20 on a floor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, Scott, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical. So, if, if if you had a funder who said, "Hey, funding and 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 resources are not an issue," what would be the the study that you would like to run? Um, what would what would it be that you would just love to get the answer to um, the the question that's kind of burning in your in you know, it's not so much a research issue. At, I mean, not so much a funding issue as a methodology issue. Okay. One of the things that I'd really like to get a handle on is what I call source attribution, which is that. Yeah. Does, does the gift, I mean, does the incentive come from the company or do I go out with my gift card and buy it? 
And is there a difference between that? And what is the difference? Does it make a difference that it came, that it's attributed to the company versus attributed to my going out and buying it? And, and what's the hypothesis there? Do you, are you saying, so if, if it came from the company, it would have a higher valiance or, or, or element to the individual? Have a higher value in relationship building, yes. And it says, you know, the, the big thing now in the incentive world is, you know, is these, is these gift cards, which, as you probably know, I'm not a big fan of. Because essentially, it's just a mechanism for giving people cash. And they go out and they buy stuff. And so the link to the company is completely broken. So this, uh, this kind of brings up that, that continuum then too, Scott, right? That, that source attribution could be, uh, you know, give, give someone cash to, they've got a paycheck to go and buy stuff. They could have a gift card to go and buy stuff. They could have points to go and redeem uh, for uh, versus actually getting a specific item, you know, getting yeah. actually just being given an item. Um, do, do you think that there's a way to tease apart all four of those different um, reward mechanisms? You know, I've been, I've, I rack my brain on it every now and then. I've not been able to come up with a good mechanism or a good methodology that doesn't prime people. Yeah. Um, it's always, yeah. The, the, that's, that's a tough one, I yeah. think. I'm going to okay. go, I'm going to go down a different rabbit hole. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Right, um, go ahead. So, I, and, I, and Scott, I apologize. I don't know if you have done work on, on loss aversion, but it, it, I think it gets into this. I'm working with an, an organization right now, and they have to, due to kind of some upper leadership decisions on, on risk, they're taking away a well-beloved travel program for their sales incentive people. And, and I mean, it is, you know, in all the company um, survey and everything, it, it, it just, it outperforms the others by just uh, a mile, right? Yeah. Um, and they are uh, looking at that and taking it away because of some other, you know, they don't want to be on the front page of, of the New York Times with this and for various different reasons. Um, but one of the things is they want to replace this or they, they, they were talking about replacing it. Um, but obviously the replacement is never going to be of that same value. And there has been this, uh, when they announced this change and we're trying to now build out this new, again, uh, tangible reward, probably still a trip. Um, but the negative the negative connotation of having that being ripped away from them and now it's all being associated back in on this new program. Uh, and so it's starting off, I think, in, in the whole. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, um, just in your perspective from, from some of the work on tangible rewards. I mean, do, do they, again, from that source attribution component or from some other factors, I, and I'm not even necessarily sure if I'm formulating a question here, but yeah, uh, no, I, I wrote about this um, in a couple of papers. This is this this matters in the sense of if something is a replacement, then you are going to have that element of like, well, what did you take away from me? Um, yeah, and, and I am just uh, you know one of the things that I tried to counsel this company with is just rip the bandaid off and don't tell them something new is coming because it, if, if it does in in the future, then the, the further away from that ripping off of the bandage, the less diso- association you're going to have with that. Um, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, right, it, is that it's important to not call it a replacement because now I'm going to be comparing the new thing to the old thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, and obviously I, I must not hold much sway because the company didn't, didn't follow my, my, uh, advice on that, but um, well, they don't, they don't understand loss aversion very well. Yeah. Probably. Well, and that was, you know, we had, um, you know, it was one of those interesting pieces where we had the people, uh, associated that we were working with, got it, but it was, it, it went up the chain and we didn't get a chance to talk to them. But yeah. I, I think that's true. So, um, all right. Okay. Gonna, well, it gets uh, my, my sense, and this is just sort of me talking sideways. It gets to a level in a company where it all becomes dollars and cents, and it, they sort of miss the 
relationship. They miss the employee. They miss, they miss, they, they, they kind of dollarize everything. And that just takes away a lot of the, the, it's called the soft stuff that really is part of an incentive program. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, some of the rationale that was actually given actually goes into some of the pieces that we talked about, you know, that relationship component. It was almost of, they felt like they were going to be viewed as bad for taking something away, but now, oh, I'm taking away your favorite toy kid, but now here's this piece of candy in return. Um, And so now I'm putting a smile back on your face and we're, um, I think there was that part that was going on inside there too, from that. I don't want to be seen as the bad person. And so, you know, if we can offer you this consulary prize, Hey, you didn't win first prize, but you got this, you know, uh, set of steak knives. Well, yeah. All right. Um, well, essentially, you know, I think mental accounting speaks to this in the sense of you, you kind of want to try to put it in a separate account. Yeah. Uh, because when you, if it's in the same account and you take that away, you just put that way into the loss column. Yeah. It's going to be hard to build back up to sort of even to break even. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the better, so the better thing to do is sort of really try to segregate them in, in the employee's mind as much as possible. Yeah. Okay. So this is not a replacement for this. This is okay. That's just gone. Yeah. That's but gone. now here's this thing we're doing for you that's something yeah. completely so different. Or a new shiny object that you can... Right. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Scott, we have two more questions for you. So I'm going to ask the first one because uh, in our pre-interview talk, you said you didn't like the second one. And so I'm going to leave that one for Tim. <laughs> um, but uh, if... You know, from from uh, the people listening to this podcast um, who want to know how to apply behavioral science to their life or work, what one hint or tip that you think would have an impact on them? Is there anything that you would say, hey, you know, think about this next time you're in a situation, um, whether that be personal or, or work-related? Broad question. Well, I have a broad answer to that, <laughs> which, is, which is essentially – People are complicated. Okay. And, you know, don't try to reduce them to what they're not, which is, you know, dollars and cents on a balance sheet or, or you know, just numbers. They're comp- Humans are complicated. And you need to understand and even relish the complication when you're trying to understand what they do. Yeah. I like that. I relish yeah. that complication because I think that's so true. So. Yeah, well said. Right. Is, is that, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I jokingly say people, this is, you know, that people are complicated is what keeps me in business. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's why I, you know, why I can keep doing what I do is because people are complicated. And you can't just summarize them down into a nice, neat little spreadsheet. Yeah, that that's terrific. Okay, Scott. I hope you are ready for. And then, and then let me let me follow up to that one though. Then there's some more specific advice. Is there are a number of behavioral economics blogs, right? Uh, Ariely's is excellent. Okay. You know, go find Ariely's blog and read what he says. Okay. Who else? Because what what other what other ones would you recommend there? <sighs> you know, Ariely is just such an entertaining guy. He's just he knows how to. To, to explain things in ways that people get and yes. entertain them at the same time. So I, I think he's sort of the guy. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great job. And as you know, I always tell my classes when I, I show a video of him in class, I said, this is, this is like WC fields and, you know, don't share the, don't share the stage with children is never talk after Dan Ariely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never go on stage after Dan. It's like you know, you'll never, you'll never succeed. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay, so uh, here's this is it. This is the big question, Scott. Okay, because the behavioral grooves is not just about behavior, but it's about grooving. It's about um, it's about music as well. And so imagine, imagine you were uh, to receive the Nobel Prize. And uh, what what theme music are you going to have played at the moment that you walk up on stage? What is what is your theme song? 
Well, I did look into this a little bit. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, it, it's a short, quick answer without a lot of time to think about it. But it's a talking head song. Okay. Uh, Wild, Wild Life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Love it. I love so, it. So, you know, I, I think that would sort of, that would be kind of one of those things. And, and, and what can tie back into the complication of people? People are complicated. Okay. It is. That is, uh, and I, I, David Byrne, there you go. That's that right. Yep. Good connection. Scott, uh, from both Tim and myself, thank you. Uh, very informative, and we are very, very uh, thankful that you agreed to, yeah. to spend some time with us and share your insights. So thank you. Appreciate yeah. Oh, that. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for the opportunity. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves interview. Uh, we have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our head or, as Scott said, the rabbit hole. So, uh, Tim, what impressions from Scott's talk do you have? There were lots of good things that we talked about, and there's several things that I think would be fun to cover in our grooving session. But number one was uh, dollarizing. Scott said we were talking about um, how employees... Uh, how employee decisions are being made by leadership, that it's a dollarizing. And, it, and to me, it's a heuristic. What, mm -hmm. what, what went through my mind is that, that instead of dealing with the complexity of people, we're reducing people-related decisions to dollar amounts. And because that's a, that's a, a an easy way for our brain to, uh, especially for leaders' brains, to deal with how to make decisions about people. Well, let's just let's put a dollar value on that and, and decide. Yeah. So that shortcut that is being used is uh, opposed to getting, as he mentioned, uh, you know, humans are complex, and right. so instead of having to deal with the complexity of humans, if we can just break that down into a dollar and cents. Uh, issue that we can put into a spreadsheet, hey, that's much easier to be able to, to, to take an argument on and to make a decision based on. Yeah, it's kind of a system one, system two thing, right? Yeah. That our brains are lazy, they go to the easier, um, they, they substitute an easier question for a more complex question. Cognitive misers, right? The cognitive misers. That was, <laughs> that was such a great, that was such a... Uh, I like that term. I will be image. using cognitive misers yeah. in uh, discussions moving so, forward. So, Kurt, what, what struck you? What, what do you think was, uh, was one of the top points from your perspective? So, uh, Scott is really one of the founders, originators of the justifiability and yeah. how justifiability comes into play, particularly when we think about rewards. And so I want to just reiterate, I think that's a huge contribution that Scott has made, um, both in the literature as well as into the application. Uh, and just for our listeners who may not be as aware of that, Tim, can you help define justifiability for uh, the people out there listening. Sure, and and let me start uh, by way of example. Uh, in uh, one of Scott's research projects, he started with uh, with teaching uh, the subjects in the experiment how to play an anagram game. Okay, and then uh, and and got baseline scores on speed and accuracy for all of them. And in this, and then went back to a second round with all these people and separated them into three different groups and asked them to improve their speed and accuracy. And in one group, he offered them uh, massages and candy bars. In the second group, he offered them cash, equivalent to the values of the, of the massages and the candy bars. And in the third group, didn't offer them anything. That was sort of the control group. Um, and then he measured their effectiveness. After the experiment, after they had completed their work, he asked them two questions, uh, among others. He asked them, um, would they rather would the people who receive the massages prefer to have have cash and overwhelmingly they said yes and then he said how hard would it be for you to justify spending your own money on the reward uh the massage specifically and more than two-thirds of the people said basically said i would never spend my own money on it i couldn't justify spending my own money on the massage mm -hmm. and so what scott uh concluded from that is that 
the quality of the reward as a motivational tool increases as the justifiability increases. So, so the, but the result of that uh, was that the massages actually had a higher performance increase than the cash. Is that correct? The, I, that's right. The people who earned the massages and candy bars outperformed the cash group by more than two to one. See, yeah. Which, again, goes into the second piece that I wanted to talk about, which if that wasn't just enough about understanding that justifiability, the ability for myself to be able to say, hey, it's okay that I'm going after this award because I I know it's going to give me a hedonic kind of luxury that I really want, but I don't feel good about spending my own money on it because I have bills to pay and all this other stuff. It also gets to the point that we don't really understand our own motivations. That yeah. say do gap, um, which again is one of the components I work with my clients all the time uh, when they are going out and taking a survey of their people. And uh, well, they say, hey, just give them cash or do this. And I always have to peel back and understand, yes, that's important. We want to get their impressions. But we also have to understand that people don't always understand what it is that really motivates them. It is really difficult. Uh, this is this is something that uh, I wrestle with in my own own mind because I have a bias, just like everyone else does. That of course I know my own motivations. Yes, <laughs> of course I do. You can ask me what I what will motivate me, and I'll tell you. But <laughs> but I also know the research well enough to understand that. I really don't. I yeah. really don't know what motivates me because even the people in, in Scott's study who earned those massages and then afterwards said, you know, I would really rather have cash. They performed twice as, as much as the people who earned cash. Yeah. So you think, well, if cash was preferred, why wouldn't the people who earned cash perform better? Yeah. But we just can't know that about ourselves. Which is why behavioral science is the fun science that it is. It's the thing that I really love about this. Because it are, oftentimes we are, uh, we are blind to our own biases. And, and that, that blindness is what behavioral science hopefully can uh, shed some light on. And so that we are in the light as opposed to in the dark on some of the stuff. So. Kurt, something else that Scott brought up that I thought was interesting, he, uh, he mentioned almost casually uh, in answer to a question about why, com- why aren't companies more concerned with their employees in these, these low unemployment terms, he said, you know, something along the lines of customers are still more important than employees. What did you think about that? I, I think that's a perception. I think that perception is held by many uh, executives. In particular, you look at their incentives of what they are being rewarded on, what they're being measured on, and it has little to do with employee engagement, satisfaction, happiness, however you want to measure that. What 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 those executives are getting paid on, getting measured on, are how are our revenues doing, which are directly related to customers and getting customers into the door and buying their products or services. So it, I, I agree. I think that that is a big component out there in the marketplace. I disagree uh, from the fact of how much impact uh, employees have on that outcome. And so it's that the behavior that leads to the outcome. And so... We need to, to well, think about that. Talk more about that. Uh, what, what, what kind of behaviors and what kind of outcomes are you, are you thinking about there? Well, and I think there are some executives, and I can't remember who it is. I think it might be Richard Branson who said, you know, uh, focus on the employees first because they're the ones who are interacting. I'm paraphrasing this and probably messing that way up. But they're the ones who are interacting with those customers. And if you don't treat your employees well, they are not going to be treating the consumers well or your your customers well. And I think that that gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. I think that there is this element of saying we are paying these people to do a job and so damn well better they do that job. Uh, when in fact, as Scott mentioned, humans are complex and the things that we might assume motivate them or get them excited or get them to do great customer service or go above and beyond are not always the things 
that executives are looking at um, yeah. and or even taking into consideration. So it, it is rare. I, uh, Doug Burgum, the Republican governor of North Dakota, mm-hmm. before he was governor, before he was an executive at Microsoft, was the uh, president and owner of a company called Great Plains Software. And mm-hmm. he used to, to say every night, he, he would say, uh, every night, my employees go home with the company. Or maybe another way, the company goes home in the minds of the employees. Mm. And that he cared about how people thought about the company because that's really where the company existed, was actually in the minds of the employees. Well, and you look at the the world today with moving much more from tangible goods, uh, at least uh, a lot of the American firms are, are... being more in the the intangible world of software and web and all of those, I think it even has a bigger impact in that in those situations. Um, you know, there's a there's an element of this glass that I buy. Am I going to buy a glass because I like the glass or how the people impact it? But the service that I get in a service rela- uh, organization or the way that. Um, uh, we interact with a company uh, is much different than than today, I think, than it is in the past. So that that leads me down a, a path of high touch versus low touch. Another rabbit hole. Here we go. <laughs> I'm wondering about uh, my experience with um, with companies like Amazon or Facebook mm-hmm. are low touch organizations yes that they're they're minimizing the amount of contact that uh, that I as a customer have with with the people uh, whether it even through chat uh, or email that there's a, a that that's a declining amount of, of contact and yet customer loyalty to Facebook and Amazon are at seemingly all-time highs I think there's a element of behavioral design in that right so if you take some of the components of why those companies are actually having a low touch interaction on the human side um, but the behavioral interactions that you do and the behavioral reinforcements that you get from them by nature of the design of how their website works is very high um, which then lends us into a whole nother realm, uh, rabbit hole we can go down, yeah. which is the ultimate, if I am a thinking of the future and moving forward, the how much of those jobs are going to be replaced by AI and computers? Yeah. And what does that leave left for the type of work that we as humans are going to be doing? Um, which is a whole nother rabbit hole, and I don't even know if we want to go down there That's, today. Well, it, it, it feels like a lot of speculation at this point. <laughs> it does, but I think that there is a, a component of it, right? If you look at the manufacturing world and how much automation has changed manufacturing in the yeah. United States, if you look at where the technology is going, customer service, you know, you have automatic you know, bots that are answering simple questions that so you no longer need a customer service rep to do that. They're saying pretty much any repetitive job is going to be soon, you know, outsourced to a computer or to a robot of some sort. And ultimately, even when you get into things like your world of music creation, scoring a, a movie, you know, which is you think has to be a very high human touch component well, you know what? We can program a computer and that can do probably just as good a job as as, as you could on doing something like that. Uh, I've known entrepreneurs in the music industry who have been working on algorithmic uh, application and automatic assembly of loops since the late 90s. Yeah. And uh, so they've been working on this sort of thing for some time, and it's not going to be far off when when songs can be automatically assembled. And so then we get into a whole different conversation in regards to, so what is left for us humans? So... And with that, wow, that's that's <laughs> a heavy dose for with that. But I like it. And like with it. that, let's uh, let's wrap up this uh, behavioral grooving session. Uh, 
any uh, any we, we usually talk about music at this point, but I'm going to ask uh, holidays are upon us. Uh, favorite food that you eat only at the holiday time? Is there any any favorite food that you just have around Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving that you don't normally have that you just love or crave? You know, uh, speaking of uh, of odd rationalization that we do as humans, I find that it's easier for me to justify eating uh, peppermint bark and um, <laughs> chocolate-covered Oreos and uh, eggnog and things that are not at all on the diet, not even close. But indulging is much easily, much more easily justified at this point in time for me. It, it, How about I, for you? I, I'm I'm with you on the indulgence uh, ability to say, well, after the holidays, I'll I'll go back on my diet. Um, for me, though, the food that that I have and I I make pretty much every Christmas Eve is oyster stew, which I love. Mm. And I don't know why I don't make it just normally, but yeah. it is the one time a year I make oyster stew. And uh, we have it as a family, and you know, most of my family doesn't like it. Maybe that's why I don't do it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's that's my indulgent uh, food that I have. Uh, that and uh, I also like stuffing, which we don't have very often, but Thanksgiving and Christmas sometimes we'll yeah. get stuffing. So. Can, can we? Just, is there somebody that you're listening to? Is there a musical thing here that we can just... Pop in oh, you're room. you're going to I'm the gonna, music. I gotta, you know, I just gotta go there. Oh my gosh, I was I was trying to change the topic on that well, because uh, I S- Scott brought up the the, the Talking Heads, Wild mm-hmm. Wildlife. Did, Talking Heads uh, was that an important band to you? Uh, you know, I I wasn't ever really a big Talking Heads fan. I mean, uh-huh. I enjoyed them. You know, I, I '80s were my musical yeah. you know genre, uh, but I was much more into. Uh, Depeche Mode, New Order, uh, those types of bands, which again, Talking Heads, to a certain degree, falls into into that. But they're but a little punkier, a little, a little uh, more, more punky. I mean, I like I, I've you know subsequently gone back and gotten more into some of the punk stuff, some of the Husker Duish. Uh, you know, black flag kind of pieces. Even. Wow. Yeah. Well, and then I go my whole the whole other caveat is I'll go down to the uh, industrial world with uh, nine inch nails and uh, wow. and um, oh my gosh, like Metallica? Uh, no, not Metallica. That's that's more of your death metal component. I am more into. Um, uh, I am drawing a blank. So we'll just call um, it nine inch nails. Nine inch nails, and next time, next time, ask next time. me and you. So holiday, uh, your your musical listening taste here. I had a friend who teed up uh, several different iterations of uh, versions, you know, recorded by different people of "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree." No. And of course, you know it's a Johnny Marks tune. The, the same same composer who wrote "Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer." This guy was a, a talented songwriter. Uh, but I still go back to Brenda Lee. I still go back to the original recording in the early '60s of, of Brenda Lee's voice. Just just absolutely captured that that <laughs> tune for me. So um, so I'm I'm kind of on that right now. All right. Well, good. Um, all right. So with that, oh wait, find our you know find our podcast uh, on uh, iTunes or anywhere you get you like to get your podcast there and uh, refer to a friend. We just certainly appreciate that yeah. if you would subscribe and uh, pass us along if you like this. If you're a nerdy, geeky, uh, behavioralist like we are, or just a casual person who finds some of this interesting. So with that, thank you and uh, make it great. <laughs>